Allegorical Life. This is the podcast where we discuss the metaphors of life, leadership and everything in between. Welcome back to another episode of The Allegorical Life. My name's Jordan and as always, I'm here with Mark Rosweller. By way of introduction for those of you who don't know Mark, he's worked in crisis security and emergency management for over 30 years. His experiences, both personal and professional, have taken him into the world of philosophy, often intersecting with the worlds of theology and mythology. Mark often talks both nationally and internationally about these intersections and how they shape the way we think, speak and act. He talks about the ways that they can influence both the quality of our leadership and, more importantly, the quality of our lives. Mark, it's great to have you with us again today. Uh, We're talking about the inevitability of natural hazards. Now, you've spent a lot of your career in emergency management. Uh, What can you tell us about the inevitability of catastrophic natural hazard events in Australia? So what I've found throughout the course of my career is we've... um often traded off catastrophe for rarity. So we've, nobody wants these things, of course, and I, I can well understand why people don't give them, uh, you know, too much thought or due regard. And, and if a leader hasn't had experience of one, it's almost sensible to not worry too much about it because the, the concept or the, the, the uh, potentiality of a catastrophic event is just too difficult to contemplate for most people. So, so you, on one level, you can understand why people would trade it off but but as I often say to people in my public speaking that you know nature's very kind she'll tell you what she's about to do through antecedent condition but she won't ask and so there's no choice in these matters and we're now living in a in a climate you know uh, and its relationship with the landscape and the built environment that that is generating such complexity through changing climate um and, you know, more sophisticated societies and more interconnected and interdependent systems that we rely upon, that catastrophe is never really too far away at the global level. In fact, it plays out, um, you know, many times in a 12-month period globally, uh, and it's happening more frequently locally. So um, so I say to leaders a lot, and it, what I speak to in terms of crisis is not just in relation to natural hazards, although it's a really good exemplar because it's so obvious and it's so macro um, is that um, these things turn up when you least expect them or they turn up outside of choice. So if you're a leader uh, in any sense of the word uh, within a system or an enterprise, public or private, you probably aren't going to be able to trade your way out of the problem when it happens. So the reason I talk about inevitability is to say, look, nobody wants one of these things. Nobody. So, so, and anyone who does is, you know, kind of a bit warped, I suspect. So, nobody wants them. But if you're in leadership, at some point in your leadership um, journey, you're going to face crisis on some level. And in the natural hazard context, as I said, nature's kind. She'll tell us what she's going to do, but she won't ask. So, we get a chance to prepare for it. So, so I say to leaders, look, um, have a look at potentiality, and within the space of your influence or your responsibilities, if you've got the potential for a crisis. Yes, you can trade it off on the basis of rarity. So you can use risk matrices, you know, risk management processes to say simply this, that you know, generally speaking, the most consequential is the least likely. So, uh, and, and what happens in risk assessment is that the risk gets traded down. So rather than being say an extreme risk, it gets traded down to you know, very high or some sort of slightly subordinate ranking 
other than extreme. And so people walk away from the risk pretty quick because they say, look, it's not an extreme risk. We don't need to worry about it. But the reason it's not an extreme risk is it's traded off on the basis of rarity. But the consequences of that event are still uh, are still inherently existent or they still um, they, they, they don't get discounted by rarity. So when the event turns up, when the, when the disaster happens, that consequence that we've foreshadowed uh, as extreme or catastrophic manifests into reality. It manifests physically and emotionally and spiritually and so on and so forth. So, so therefore, we have to deal with it. We've got to navigate it or manage it. So the reason for speaking to inevitability is not to say that that's what we want. It's not to even say that that's what we will predict. What it is to say is, is that, that by thinking about uh, crisis in the context of inevitability, it forces us to unpackage what we would do about it when that thing happens. And so risk management is still okay. You can still trade it down and you can still limit the equities um, of investment in how you mitigate it. Uh, or how you uh, avoid it or, or minimise it or whatever the case might be and with you know, all those good things about risk management. But but by accepting inevitability, it, it forces you to look at the, the full potentiality and where, and where is your place within it and what would you do about it should it arise outside of your choice. And sometimes the biggest cause of human suffering is the suffering of ignorance and you know things we could have known and didn't know or chose not to know. Uh, in in philosophy, it's called the epistemology of ignorance. So we operate somewhere between, you know, truly blissful ignorance, have no idea and no no capacity to know, uh, all the way through to willful neglect, where we absolutely know and we choose not to act. And there's a range of different uh, factors in between those two polarizing points. But so leadership operates in that space kind of all the time. You know, there's some things we have a bit of a sense of. Uh, but we don't want to know about it, so we don't turn our attention uh, to those factors. And for some things, that's okay because the consequences of their manifestation are pretty small. So, you know, if they do happen, we can probably deal with them contingently in any event. But when you talk about catastrophic disaster or severe catastrophic disaster in a natural hazards context or in a human cause context, when those things manifest, then, the you know, the consequences are extremely significant. And it's the fact that we have, hadn't given them enough thought beforehand is what causes much of the, the suffering and the loss and the grief and all that comes with it. So so it's a bit complex, Jordan, and that's why it takes a little bit to explain, but anyone in leadership, crisis leadership, you know, human cause, uh, natural disaster, uh, national security, um, um, financial security, uh, you know, people in the in the global economic market or the investment and finance markets, they would understand these things to a point, particularly people in insurance, uh, to contemplate these inevitabilities and understand the positioning that we would take within them. Mark, how do you think Australians have traditionally coped with this kind of inevitability? Um, in a fascinating way, I think that we have this wonderful notion in Australia called she'll be right, mate. And uh, and it's, and it's, it's kind of uh, worked pretty well for us for for all of our European history, and I'm not sure that our Indigenous folk would share the same view. I think they're much wiser about the potentiality of the atmosphere and the landscape in Australia than we are, so I don't think they'd have quite the same view. But nonetheless, um, it's carried European settlement through reasonably comfortably, but it's also kept us in a state of what I call uh, false optimism. So um, 
that attitude doesn't work in severe catastrophic disaster because people are really harmed in quite significant ways and lose lose a lot of things. Um, I don't advocate pessimism, but I do advocate a sensible realism. And the sensible realism is simply about saying, look, you just can't ignore potentiality. You have to understand and appreciate the potentiality of any given place on the landscape of, of Australia. So, for example, um, if you live in the in the Blue Mountains in Sydney, uh, in New South Wales, you know, one of the most bushfire-prone landscapes in the world, really, uh, rated up certainly probably the top five, um, you would have to contemplate as a resident or a, or a local mayor or councillor or business owner, uh, whatever, um, the full potentiality of catastrophic fire in the Blue Mountains. You, you would have to contemplate it. Um, and what would you do about it when it happened? And um, not, a, not a comfortable thing to think about, but a necessary one nonetheless. In other places, it's less obvious. So there are parts of the Australian landscape that haven't experienced a natural hazard impact for, you know, for generations, really. And, um, but there's a subtlety to that. So history will tell us that that disasters happened before. So our Indigenous history will tell us that. Um, our geological history will tell us that. If you dig down in the soils, you'll find evidence of previous floods and fires and so on and so forth. Um, and science will uh, obviously predict these things uh, happening in the future. And so if you look at history, and history says, yes, these things have happened before in any given uh, place in the Australian landscape, and science says that, yes, they'll happen again, then you've in fact got an inevitability about that event. Um, and the only variable uh, or unknown factor is the when but not the where. So we know where these things will happen. We just don't know when they'll happen. Um, what makes it even more interesting is with the changing climate or climate change, um, we're getting weather effects across Australia that, um, that are producing um, hazards that are not generationally understood. So a really good example is the, the, the severe to catastrophic bushfires in north, uh, coastal northeastern Queensland last summer. Uh, generationally unprecedented. No one living there had had experienced such intense fire activity. And those fires extended contiguously about 1,500 kilometres uh, up the coast of Queensland. So a really, really big event. So the climate is shifting. The landscape's responding accordingly through drought and increased volatility of uh, bushfire fuels as an example in that space. And, and then people had to experience something that was in the minds of many unimaginable um, and I, I did challenge that um, with the Queensland authorities by saying, look, we had in fact contemplated fire in that part of the Australian landscape 20 years ago with the, with the advent of climate change or our, or our increasing understanding of its potential. And we knew that the, the climate would shift in a way that areas that hadn't experienced certain hazards in Australia would start to experience them. So fire is a classic where as Australia dries out in certain places that have traditionally been wet, as the fall patterns change, then fire will enter those places. And that's, a, that's what happened in North Queensland. So there'll be other parts of Australia where flooding will become far more prominent uh, because of the, the shifting rainfall patterns and the intensifications of that rain. So, so these are complex issues, Jordan, but they're, they're necessary nonetheless. And the natural hazard world is a great way of showing us how to be contingent in our thinking and how to contemplate catastrophe on some level and how do we position for it so it's very much an ethical question i think if leaders are in the space of you know reducing harm or be uh, being more compassionate and being more considerate of those people that they lead 
Um, and I think a necessary part of that is understanding what might crisis look like in any given context, really, and, and how does a leader position themselves to navigate through that. And it doesn't necessarily mean a lot of investment of money and resources and effort, but it does require thinking and it does require contemplation so that the leader knows you know, what, what they would do um, should such circumstances arise. And, and then from there, I think actions do follow that would probably be different uh, to actions that if, the, if that problem wasn't properly contemplated. So I think, I think there is a change in action. I think there's a, a change in, in commitments, but it doesn't necessarily have to be extremely expensive or complex. It just has to be better informed, but more knowledgeable, essentially. And Mark, do you think that there's a cultural shift required in terms of how Australians think about natural hazards, particularly with the climate shifting as well? Look, look there does. I speak about this a lot. Um, Sir Francis Bacon was the philosopher in the uh, pre-enlightenment period of the 1600s who essentially, you know, encapsulated human thought at the time and said that um, we divorced ourselves from nature in many respects. We were uh, I think culturally and sociologically, you know, and it, a, a more a closer to nature prior to the Enlightenment period. But when we discovered the power of science and rational thought and reason and logics and all those things that uh, come with it, um, we divorced ourselves from nature and on some level developed a superiority or a hubris or an arrogance about our place and saw nature more as a, as resources and, and as part of um, the ability for us to liberate ourselves externally so to pursue external liberties of wealth and and enjoyments and and social conditioning and so on and so forth and so we made a fundamental shift in our thinking and divorced ourselves from nature and and saw ourselves as separate and and that's a global phenomena of the west and it, and it pervades now into eastern eastern societies because we're a truly you know cosmopolitan and globalized um world now but but it's, it's had the effect of us losing contact with nature and losing our understanding of climate and landscape and not understanding its potentiality. So I think there's some fundamental issues here, Jordan, about needing to revisit our relationality with climate and our relationality with weather and our relationality with the landscape. And, um, you know, that Brian Cox, the, the great um, a physics professor, says that, you know, earth, wind, fire and water, you know, essentially the elements that make up the earth also make make up us. And um, there's a profound truth to that metaphysically as well as as well as uh, as physically in the you know in the, in the normative sense. So so I do think we've got to rebalance this thing and, and reconnect and understand our relationship with the world. Um, if you were to personify nature as male or female, it doesn't matter, but but you know, let's let's use the female personification, which is you know rich in pagan history. Um, she has certain demands and certain needs which are not um, up for compromise and, and are not up for negotiation. And if we're in relationship with her, then there, therefore there has to be a respect about those needs. And if they're not negotiable simply because they're part of who she is, we really have to understand them and respect them. And uh, you know, the forces are... Na- so when we talk about natural disasters, we often say, certainly I say, they're not natural because they're, it only becomes a disaster when society fails because of where and how we've placed ourselves in the landscape. The forces of nature turn up through earth, wind, fire or water and exert themselves and it's our inability to cope with them uh, that causes the disaster. And the reason it's our inability to cope 
is because on some level it's been out of lack of regard or disrespect for those forces or lack of understanding or ignorance. Um, and it really does stem from, from that. So getting better at that, at that relationality, that mutual respect, that understanding, uh, that knowledge, and infusing that into our intentions of society and how we build and where we place ourselves and what we consider as value is absolutely fundamental. And if, and if we don't reframe culturally uh, in that context, we will continue to suffer immensely. And um, there's a fair bit of discussion happening about this in certain policy circles and academic circles, but, but I think more needs to happen. Uh, and I think Australians generally, you know, not even people with as much knowledge as I've had the privilege of accessing in my career, but uh, just people who live on the land or, you know, live close to nature would do well and I think would enjoy understanding more fully what those forces mean, what, you know, how they're, how they're, how they're uh, produced and how we navigate them. Uh, I kind of think it's fundamental, but we're so distracted by pursuits of liberty and external liberation and materiality and materialism, sorry, and, and all those things that come with it, that I think we kind of lose that connection. And I, I think that's really sad. You know, part of our spirituality is caught up in our relationship with the atmosphere and the landscape. Mark, how are other nations finding ways to look at the challenges of inevitability? And what do you think we can learn from them? I think it's a shared problem, Jordan. I'm doing a lot of research in the US at the moment and in, in New Zealand and, and even up into Southeast Asia, uh, and looking a little bit into Europe, I think the uh, it's a common problem. I think because we're a cosmopolitan and globalised society, uh, we, we've all moved ourselves in similar directions about how we, and this is uh, at the macro level, of course, about how we see ourselves in the context of nature. So so I think that, that disregard or that divorce uh, from the relationship with nature is fundamentally felt across the world. So I think everybody faces similar problems. The indigenous cultures of most uh, nations uh, are suffering the effects of this problem, but are not the cause of it. So they are much closer to the landscape and the atmosphere and and and, it's, and their understandings of it than, than Western society or, or, or the societies arising out of modernity um, are. So I think that's the distinction. I don't think it's so much where in the world there's a difference. I think there's a difference between the Indigenous uh, spirituality and understandings of climate and landscape uh, as opposed to Western notions of pursuit of liberty. And I think that's where the tension lies. So so how we, how we bridge that is really interesting. I think um, I remember when I was in um, <clears throat> Seattle in Washington, uh, USA, a few years ago now, I was talking to a local geologist and uh, who, who really, really understood uh, the earthquake history of the of the uh, west coast of America, and, and he told me the story of the uh, Native American Indians who who basically shook their heads when white Europeans turned up and started to settle on the lowlands of what we now call Seattle because they understood how volatile it was to tsunami and earthquake, and um, and their indigenous histories and stories and and folklore were, were full of full of stories and insights about the hazardous nature and the perils that existed in that world, and and to be contingent about that and to be nomadic was probably a better way to navigate those lands. And of course, Europeans turned up in you know essentially around the the, the, the commencement of the Enlightenment period and and just settled and, and put fences up and, and and 
grounded themselves on that landscape, you know, really embed, it really bedded in. And the Indigenous people just shook their heads and said, that's, that's foolish. Uh, but we didn't want to listen. We couldn't listen. We had a different worldview. We had a different, you know, different set of priorities. And, and now Seattle is, is just extraordinarily vulnerable to a catastrophic level earthquake that called it the Cascadia fault line runs right down the west coast of America. And, and if it slips at 8.5 magnitude plus, then the death toll will be in the tens of thousands, injuries in the hundreds of thousands and displacements in the millions. Um, it's just a phenomenal crisis management problem that the Americans have, have been trying to get their head around for almost 10 years now about how they would manage it when it happens. So, so those historical decisions that we've all made as settlers coming out of Europe um, have not necessarily served us well, largely because of, I think probably back in those days was a level of blissful ignorance, although I think the Indigenous folk could have dispelled that ignorance if we had have listened to them. Um, but now we have no excuse. Our, science, our own science and technology and methods and practices um, are, are highly, uh, highly versed towards showing us potentiality and therefore I think there's almost no excuse for not making a good decision. And I think, I think we have to really revisit where and how we place ourselves in the landscape. And we don't, if we don't want to listen to the Indigenous folk, which I think is unfortunate, then at least listen to our own science and, and our own, you know, our, our own uh, geographical understandings and so on and so forth, because they will certainly tell us uh, if we don't want to hear the Indigenous people. listening to the Allegorical Life podcast. Well, Mark, thank you. I think we're nearly at the end of another episode of the Allegorical Life podcast, but is there anything else you'd like to add to finish up? Um, I don't think so. I think, um, I think, look, the only thing I would add is that I don't think this is a space in which to panic, but I do think it is a space in which to give due regard and respect for. And I think there's a great opportunity here for communities going forward to, through sensible narratives and sensible politics uh, and good science and Indigenous understanding, to revisit these potentialities and to have conversations in community about, you know, should those things manifest? What's really important to us? What, what is it that we value? Uh, what's tradable in terms of loss? What's not tradable? What, what, what are we not prepared to lose? You know, what are we prepared to lose? And make a distinction between those two based on a shared set of human values of any, any given local community and, and start to structure and invest in, in accordance with those values so that when these things manifest, that the impacts are just not so great and, and they accord more with expectation about our understanding of what we knew could or would happen. And that's a much better informed position than being ignorant. So I don't think we should fear these things unnecessarily. I think we should deal with them sensibly. Nobody wants one. I used to I used to be accused when I was Director General of EMA of, you know, almost wanting these things or being alarmist. And I, my response was really simple. I would say, look, as Head of Emergency Management for Australia, advising the Prime Minister and the Cabinet of the Australian Government, surely you expect me to know or to understand this potentiality. Surely you would expect me to know and understand that. And that is all I am saying of any leader in any context of crisis, human caused or natural, there is an expectation when something happens that you knew as much about it as possible and you had positioned yourself to do something about it. And no leader in, this, in space of leadership and 
where there's a crisis inference escapes that reality. So the, the response is really simple to the cynics that say you're just being alarmist, is to just retort, simply say, surely you would expect me to know if that's my job. And, uh, and I think that's where the argument ends and then we get to a sensible discussion about potential. Thanks for joining us today on the Allegorical Life. If you're enjoying our podcast, you might like to add a review on iTunes and that'll help other people find us as well. Thank you and we hope to have you with us again soon.